You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, March 10th, 2022. I'm Cutta Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over campus and local news with details on a recent homicide that occurred outside of the Loveland Community Kitchen. I go over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies, and we hear from Portia Cook about CSU's ROTC program. After that, Coda goes over details on a Colorado election clerk being indicted for leaking election data. Then we hear from Beth Seymour from the ACT Human Rights Film Festival on what visitors can expect at this year's event. After that, we'll hear from Eliza Droder on local sports. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology with information on why PlayStation is refusing to distribute products in, in Russia. Let's move right into campus and local news. I'm Kira McKinley reporting your campus news for Thursday, March 10th. The Colorado State University men's basketball team won their last regular season game last Saturday against Boise State. The team wrapped up their season 24-4, likely qualifying them for March Madness. The team's captain, David Roddy, was also named Mountain West Player of the Year. Multiple pictures have surfaced recently, showing undercooked chicken from the CSU dining hall. Despite the concerns, so far there have been no cases of foodborne illnesses or food poisoning since August, reports Noelle Mason of The Collegian. According to Noel Mason of the Collegian, the CSU Residential Dining Services have had multiple procedures in place to prevent uncooked chicken, such as testing the chicken's temperature to make sure it's been fully cooked, along with cross-contamination prevention measures. Colorado State University President Joyce McConnell presented her Courageous Strategic Transformation Plan at a kickoff event on March 1st. McConnell is eager for CSU to continue to grow and being a united and engaged community. The Courageous Strategic Transformation Plan seeks to accomplish these goals by focusing on four main groups, people, finance, innovation, and impact. Todd Gaines, an assistant professor for the Department of Agriculture Biology at CSU, has teamed up with AUM LifeTech, a biotechnology company, to research weed control methods that could be revolutionary. Weeds are becoming more and more resilient to traditional control methods, such as pesticides. According to Ann Manning of CSU Source News, to combat this issue, Gaines seeks to create gene-slicing weed control technology that would target specific parts of the weed's RNA. This product would be an environmentally friendly alternative to many other weed control products. Thank you for listening to my CSU campus news updates. I'm Kira McKinley, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU. Here is Ellie Shannon with your local news updates. Here's your local news for Thursday. Jim Thompson, one of the six finalists for the Fort Collins city manager position, has withdrawn his application. According to J.C. Marmaduke of the Coloradoan, Thompson stated in a news release that there is an overwhelming organizational and community desire for him to stay as the city manager in Scottsdale, Arizona. Fort Collins Human Resources Executive Teresa Roche also told the Coloradoan that people began to reach out, asking him to reconsider staying in Scottsdale. The final selection for Fort Collins city manager will be announced at the end of May. Loveland police recently reported a homicide after finding a 49-year-old's body in the parking lot next to the Loveland Community Kitchen. On March 2nd, police received a report of an unresponsive man in the parking lot, and he was pronounced dead on the scene, according to Janet Oravets of Nine News. The Loveland police are now investigating the murder, and anyone with information is asked to call Crime Stoppers at 970-221-6868. Scammers have been using the name of the Windsor Public Library in attempts to get money from the public. Windsor's Public Library Board advises that it does not directly solicit payments or donations, according to Dalson Chen of the Windsor Star. Anyone who receives a suspicious email or text message asking for funds for the library should not click on any links, photos, or attachments. Loveland City Council approved to pay the Larimer Humane Society over $500,000 for services in 2022. The Humane Society's interim CEO, Judy Calhoun, asked for over $100,000 more compared to the 2021 compensation amount. According to Jackie Hutchins of the Loveland Reporter Herald, the proposed compensation is that the Humane Society will receive over $700,000 in a contract through 2024 to cover the full cost of services provided. Negotiations on the 2023 contract budget will begin later this year. Thanks for listening to my local news updates. 
Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesday and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5 FM. This is DJ Bing, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Holmes. back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of Campus and Local News with Kira McKinley and Ellie Shannon, check out our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University no longer requires masks among students and employees on its Fort Collins campus. Two new cases were reported Wednesday, with one among students and one among staff and faculty of CSU. Larimer County reports low community risk for COVID-19, with a case rate of just over 30 cases per 100,000 residents and only 4.5% of tests coming back positive this week. New COVID-19 emissions remain low, and COVID-19 patients make up under 3% of occupied inpatient hospital beds. The state of Colorado reports over 1.3 million COVID-19 cases and over 12,700 deaths. 4.7 million people received testing in the state for COVID-19, and 60,000 people are hospitalized across Colorado. 10.3 million vaccines have been administered in Colorado, and nearly 4 million Colorado residents are fully immunized against COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report over 79.1 million COVID-19 cases and almost 960,000 deaths due to COVID-19 in the country. Half a billion vaccines have been administered in the U.S., and over 81% of eligible people have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for Thursday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you're a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. My name is Portia Cook, and today I am joined by Matthew Tillman from Army ROTC to discuss the RAM Battalion and Army ROTC at Colorado State University. Thank you so much for joining me today. To start off, can you tell me what your title and positions are within ROTC and CSU? I'm the professor of military science for Army ROTC. I'm the lieutenant colonel in the Army. So two different pieces there. So as a professor of military science, I also serve as the department chair for Army ROTC. So two pieces. All right. And can you talk to me about your past and current roles within the United States military? Sure. So I commissioned from Army ROTC at Colorado State in 2004. So that's where my Army story starts is right here on campus, just like the cadets that are in the Ram Battalion. Uh, From there, I did five years at Fort Campbell, Kentucky in the 101st Airborne Division, where I deployed to Iraq once and once to Afghanistan, uh, and then bounced all over the country, Virginia, California, Texas, a short stint back in Colorado. And then most recently, I was in Washington State, just south of Tacoma, uh, where I served as the operations officer for a medical brigade as we just started the COVID response two years ago. All right. And what is your current role within the Army ROTC at CSU? So I lead the program here for Army ROTC. So we've got about 140 Army ROTC cadets that are spread across all four years of the program. And then between here and the University of Northern Colorado, we have 16 cadre members. So some of those are active duty service members that are teaching Army things. We have a couple of Department of the Army civilians that help us with the logistics and administrative processes associated with taking college students and making, making them into commissioned officers. And then one lonely CSU employee who gets to keep us out of trouble. So I I lead the the program and we do everything from the physical training that's required to get young men and women ready to serve their country in the army through 
teaching them how to do land navigation tasks, uh, the tactics that are involved with demonstrating their leadership through a military history class, even that we work with the Department of History to do so that they can really come out of Colorado State ready to go and lead in ground combat. Okay. And talk to me about your role within CSU in general. It's awesome. I get to touch just about anywhere I want to because we are one of only three truly intercollegiate programs on campus. The Honors Program, the Army ROTC Program, the Air Force Program. We touch every college on campus. So I have students in every college that are cadets in this program as well. Just left the working group on hazing prevention where I get to contribute to the university campus there. We work with university advancement just like any other department chair is going to do. We have great relationships with health and exercise science and other departments around campus where we get to do co-learning. Health and exercise science students are our personal trainers for physical fitness in the Army ROTC program. So all over the place, getting to do just about anything that we think is going to help advance the university and accomplish our mission of making lieutenants at CSU. All right. Now let's talk about the ROTC program. Explain to me what the ROTC program is. TC is the largest commissioning source for officers in the military in the United States. And there's a distinction between a commissioned officer and an enlisted soldier in our military. Um, So the commissioned officer is responsible for the overall readiness and accomplishment of their unit's mission in combat times. An enlisted soldier who enlists right away has a track to be a leader in the Army, but they become a non-commissioned officer who is focused on small teams and individuals and their training ability, whereas the commissioned officer looks at the unit as we go through. So we make lieutenants for the army and lieutenants turn into captains who turn into majors who end up being general officers and leading military forces in the world. At its heart, ROTC is a college elective to start with. So none of my students are committed to military service at the earliest, the beginning of their sophomore year. Most of them right before they begin their academic junior year is when they commit to military service. All right, and who can join the ROTC program? So really on the front side of your college experience, there's very few stipulations. Um, We have to prove country of birth because they're later in the program, we talk about some things that aren't classified, but they're things we don't advertise widely. You have to have a social security card so that we can later pay you, but there are some very simple restrictions there. But any college, any major, as long as they're a full-time enrolled student at CSU, they can do the first four semesters of Army ROTC. In order to do the last four semesters of ROTC, you have to raise your right hand and say that you'll defend the nation. Uh, So that's the the delineation point between the two. But that's all I need at the end of the day is really four semesters. So we have master's students who are working on a master's program who started ROTC after they were done with their bachelor's degree and anywhere between there. So the freshmen that will come in in the fall and do all eight semesters consecutively to ones who are going to condense the first four semesters, even some that are going to go to Fort Knox this summer and do a shortened basic training where they're going to learn the stuff they would have learned in the first four semesters of ROTC and then come back and finish here the last four in their junior and senior years. Grade restrictions, just like an athletic team, you have physical restrictions that you've got to be able to do the physical things because right. our nation asks an army officer to go and win our nation's wars with people with all kinds of different things as they come in and what is their background. It makes them different. And our army should be a direct reflection of our society, which means the warts and the good and all of it together. And I think you see that right now that our army really is a reflection of that. One of the things that makes me proud is that we have led the charge in a lot of ways in the army. We haven't always gotten it right, but for a lot of the equality and some of the inclusion things that our society is starting to get right now, we were doing that in the army a long time ago. And so it makes me proud to know that we lead the charge in many cases, but we are a reflection of society. And what society asks us to do is what we do because we are just Americans too. Now, I'm aware that CSU's ROTC program consists of both the Army and the Air Force. Are there any other detachments here at CSU? Those are the only two at CSU. So we only have Air Force and Army at CSU. And the Air Force detachment is the best one in the country right now. Qualitatively, they won the award for the best detachment in the country. So Detachment 90 upstairs is doing great things. They're one of the biggest. Really good. At other universities, you might add a Navy program to it as well. We don't have one here. CU Boulder has a Navy one, but they're they're much smaller, not as many Navy 
folks out there doing it is there are Army and Air Force. Now, when joining the ROTC program, what can a student expect in terms of being enrolled in the program, the length and commitment in general? I think what you can expect is that you are immediately part of a community. So you come in and you get a mix of fraternity, sorority life, where it is becomes a social network immediately because I force them to. Being a good leader means that I know who the people are that I lead. And so you have upperclassmen who are told and, of course, embrace the fact that they need to know their underclassmen that are in their, their organization, their squad or their platoon. You also kind of get a little bit of sports team. So this morning, we were out at 6 o'clock in the morning between the annex at Moby and the IM fields working out together. And that's where those health and exercise science students come in. Got a master's student, Jay, who's out there just like the strength and conditioning coach from the football team who's yelling at people and motivating them. So we have three times a week we meet to work out early in the morning, get up, get going, do your stuff classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays where you learn about army things. Um, sometimes it's really simple. How do you address the people in the military? How do you wear your uniform? Thursday afternoons, we do a leadership lab where we go out to the engineering research campus on West campus and we do tactics. So we teach people how to do an attack. How do you do a platoon attack? And the reason for that is that's how we assess leadership. Give you a complex problem, ask you to execute that mission that you've been given uh, and then we assess how you lead others as you do it. And that's it, other than the other fun stuff that gets to happen. And fall is busy because of our involvement on game day. We alternate with the Air Force presenting colors at women's and men's basketball team games and volleyball games. There's the other campus opportunities that exist in a, in a large student organization, too. Okay, now in the ROTC program, there are categories of cadets. Talk to me about what each of these categories are. So we have like your normal high school to college student and do that. We are one of the largest scholarship organizations on campus where we just saw the paperwork come through about $540,000 in tuition books and fees that come to the university. And 90s full, full ride scholarship students right now in Army ROTC. A lot of students getting paid to go to school part of this program. And, and that's because they're going to go serve their country when they're done. We also have students who are non-scholarship who are on campus that are doing this because they came in later and probably didn't have time to win a scholarship. We have Colorado National Guard soldiers who are also attending Colorado State and going to earn their commission when they're finished. So they're enlisted soldiers doing that now. And then we have right now four active duty cadets. So they are currently serving members of the Army who came back to CSU for four semesters and are going to commission when they're done. But they are on active duty right now. They are the real deal soldier as they go through. So those would be the big, the, the big three categories that I would describe that are inside of the program. Now, what happens after a student graduates from the ROTC program and CSU? Yeah, so we'll actually do our first big step before most commencement ceremonies. So on the 13th of May, we're going to do a joint ceremony with the Air Force and the Army, and we will make cadets into lieutenants. So they will take an oath of office, and it's kind of neat that the oath that an enlisted soldier takes says that you'll support and defend the Constitution and you'll obey the orders of the President of the United States. The oath an officer take doesn't say they'll obey orders. It just says, I'll defend the Constitution and that I take the obligation freely. So you're basically saying the Constitution is it and I will disobey orders if I have to to defend the Constitution. So I'll take that oath in the student center on the 13th and then they'll go do their commencements in whatever school it is. From there, Various dates through the next really eight months or so, they'll go off to their basic officer leadership course. And that's based on the branch that they're assigned inside the Army. So if I'm going to be an Army aviator, I'm going to go to Fort Rucker, Alabama, and I'm going to learn how to be an aviation officer, including learning how to fly a helicopter. Um, if I'm going to be an infantry officer, I'm going to go to Fort Benning. I'm going to learn how to be an infantry officer and lead an infantry platoon. And from there, they'll go to their first duty station, wherever that is around the world. Um, uh, so that could be going to the 101st Airborne Division, where I said I did my initial time being a platoon leader there. And then you'll be in the Army track and you'll move around. All of our cadets have an eight-year commitment when they sign that dotted line and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend the Constitution. That eight years, though, is done in a couple different ways. If they go on active duty, they only do four years on active duty. If they go to the National Guard, they do all eight years in the National Guard. So that kind of breaks out how it works. 
The Army ROTC website mentions preparing college students to receive a commission as a second lieutenant in the United States Army. Talk to me about what it means to be a second lieutenant in the United States Army. Lieutenant's where the Army and the Air Force starts. Navy starts as an ensign. It's just the the entry-level rank for a commissioned officer. All right. Now, what does students enrolling in the ROTC program mean in terms of joining the Army? So no commitment until they raise their right hand. Zero. For my scholarship students who get a four- or a three-year scholarship, they don't even have a commitment to actually serve until the first day of their sophomore year. So no commitment before then. Non-scholarship students can go all the way until the first day of their junior year before they raise their right hand and enlist in the Army. Um, But there's no commitment before that. And I sit at this table with every one of them and make sure they understand what they're getting into and where they're headed. So maybe in high school you saw someone do a delayed entry program where they finished high school but then went off and did their basic training. ROTC is the same thing. But the delayed entry program now is to finish college and then you go serve your nation and you go serve your nation as a commissioned officer. To frame that a little bit more for you, a, a non-commissioned officer, the, the, the first non-commissioned officer we have on the enlisted side has probably been in the army four to six years and they're going to have three to four, maybe five soldiers that work for them. These lieutenants who graduate on May 13th, when they arrive at their unit after that next block of training, We'll have anywhere up to 45 soldiers that are in their formation that they're responsible for on day one. We are growing here at CSU, the leaders for our army. Now, on February 24th, many of us watched as Russian military forces invaded its bordering country, Ukraine. As two of the founding members of the Soviet Union continue to battle, many wonder what the recent developments potentially mean for CSU's ROTC military students. Can you speak on if what's taking place between Russia and Ukraine will impact CSU's ROTC students? When they sign that contract with ROTC that says, I'm going to do this thing, one of the stipulations in the contract is that they won't be called to active duty while they're in school. The only person who can do that is the president of the United States during a declared time of war. And the last time a president did that was 1863 out of West Point. So we need to make officers. We don't need to pull college students out of school and send them right away. So if our nation calls on its army to go and do something around the world someplace, then the cadets at CSU are going to continue to march to be cadets because I need them to commission so that they can go and lead whatever the future forces that they go to. No impact directly on CSU students. All right. Now, can you talk to me about some of the confusion that lies around deployment while in the ROTC program? You're not deploying while you're in ROTC. Even those National Guard soldiers that I talked about, those Colorado National Guard soldiers, when they contract in ROTC, they become non-deployable because our Army wants these college students to become commissioned officers. So we are protecting this population to become the next generation of leaders for the Army. Now, for those who are interested in learning more about the ROTC program, where should they go? Our, our website's the best place to go to start with. Um, I mean, at least you had coming in here, you had a pretty good framework of your questions. And then there is a ask questions button on that website that'll take them directly to the man who did my commissioning oath, who stood on the other side of the stage in Lori Student Center and said, raise your right hand and repeat after me been doing this for 18 years. Uh, Colonel retired Pete Bly sits right out there. You walk by him and he's phenomenal. So if they hit that additional information, it's going to go to him and he knows the ins and outs of how to make this happen for anybody on campus. Okay. And where is the best place for ROTC or CSU's military students in general to go if they need support? Start with ALVS, Adult and Veteran Learning Services over there with Dr. Schrader, and his team, they know the ins and outs of how to get veteran support. They know how to get folks the on-campus resources that they need. They have a very robust peer support group, lots of resources out of ALBS. So that's where they should start. But if nobody, nothing else, my door's open. They can come see me too. But I'd start in ALBS. All right. Now tell me what you are most proud of within CSU's ROTC and military services. I think it's that lineage. On the 13th, we will have a 1986 grad of this program who's back, who is a unified combatant commander. And I need to scope that for you because 
it's a big deal, but you've heard of Space Force, right? Yeah. The way we do this is the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, and now Space Force provide forces to unified combatant commanders. Heard the CENTCOM commander before? Well, right now, we're mostly talking about the European combatant commander who is dealing with the activities there. That's a four-star general who's appointed by the president and reports directly to the Secretary of Defense and their joint officers. Well, General Dickinson in Peterson Air Force Base is, a, is the 86th grad, and he is the first SpaceCom commander. So he is responsible for all of space as a combatant commander, and he's an 86th grad at CSU. He's one example. We've got two Medal of Honor winners that are out there on the wall that are CSU grads from the ROTC program. We have a Navy Cross winner who's a grad. And every time I engage with alumni, I... I remember how deep the lineage of Colorado State University is when it comes to military officership. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud I get to be a part of that. And now in this job, I'm proud that I get to continue that legacy as I go through. Is there anything else you would like me to know about CSU's Army ROTC program or CSU's military services in general? I want to make sure we highlight that this is not a new thing at CSU. So we claim 1883 is when we started military training at CSU is they took former Civil War veterans and started a drill team here. And we had to because the Merrill Act that started the land-grant university said you had to do military training. So as deep as the ag school and the engineering school are in CSU's DNA, so is military training. And ROTC didn't start until 1916. So we are older than ROTC itself. And I see that every day on this campus where we're accepted members of campus. If you go to some of our neighboring schools along the front range, it's not as clear cut that it's okay to be doing this ROTC thing. Are we weird dudes wearing camel around campus? We absolutely are, but it's a deeply ingrained piece of the DNA of this university and, and our cadets feel included and welcome on campus. And I'm grateful for that. Matthew, thank you again for joining me. For those of you who are just tuning in, that was an interview with Matthew Tillman from CSU's Army ROTC program discussing the Ram Battalion and Army ROTC at Colorado State University. For more information on Army ROTC, you can visit armyrotc.colostate.edu or airforce.colostate.edu for more information on Detachment 90 AFROCT at Colorado State University. I'm Portia Cook, and we'll be right back with the rest of the Rocky Mountain Review in just a minute. CSU presents Poetry Open Mic Night, welcoming poets of all levels of experience to come in and share their work and skill. The event is a great opportunity to hear poetry from young poets around Fort Collins. The event will be held every third Saturday of every month. If you're interested in reading your poetry live on air, visit tinyurl.com slash KCSU poetry. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and you're listening to National News Highlights for Thursday. The first person to ever receive a heart transplant from a pig died just two months after the groundbreaking procedure. According to writers at CBS News and the Associated Press, the University of Maryland Medical Center announced Wednesday that David Bennett, the 57-year-old man who received the heart transplant, died Tuesday. Bennett was ineligible for a human heart transplant, making him a candidate for the last-ditch effort to get him a functioning heart. Despite his death, this experiment was largely successful, 
as Bennett was the longest surviving recipient of an animal transplant, living over a month longer than the previous milestone for her survival after receiving an animal heart transplant. Baby Faye, an infant who received a heart from a baboon, was the longest surviving recipient at just 21 days following the procedure in 1984. In organ transplants for other vital organs, recipients typically experience a quick rejection of the organ from their body. But Bennett's survival came as a result of gene editing done to the pig prior to transplantation. Bennett's family assured the public that there was never a guarantee that it would work, with one doctor saying that Bennett told him prior to his death that should he die, he hopes his medical team will be able to help more people like him with the information they learn. Mesa County election clerk Tina Peters was indicted by a Colorado jury related to a voting breach in the 2020 presidential election. Christina A. Cassidy and James Anderson from the Associated Press report that Peters was part of what the jury called a deceptive scheme around the country to interfere with the functioning of election technology. Peters was elected in 2018 to oversee local elections in the county, and Wednesday she was charged with 10 counts with a mixture of felonies and misdemeanors. Some charges include criminal impersonation and first-degree official misconduct. Additionally, Deputy Clerk Belinda Kinsley faces charges in this case. The two are believed to have posted confidential voting systems passwords to a conservative-specific platform, along with other social media sites. Mesa County is rural and borders Utah, and the content including the county's password was quickly linked to Mesa County officials. State officials also said that a copy of the county's voting system hard drive had been posted with software that's used around the country, meaning that potential hackers could practice using the data distributed online. Jenna Griswold, Colorado's Secretary of State, worked to prohibit Peters from working with election data or overseeing last year's election in Mesa County and said in a statement, quote, Officials tasked with carrying out elections do so in public trust and must be held accountable when they abuse their power or position, end quote. Vice President Kamala Harris left for Warsaw, Poland to show support for Poland and Romania as they take in Ukrainian refugees. NPR's staff reports that Harris visits just a day after the Pentagon rejected the idea of offering fighter jets to Ukraine to defend their national borders. The White House said instead that they would assist in getting Polish jets made in the U.S. to Ukraine, but that it wasn't going to be easy. Since Ukraine currently constitutes contested airspace as Russia occupies the country, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby tweeted out that sending U.S. fighter jets into Ukraine would be complicated and could cause issues for every country in NATO. Harris meets with Polish allies Thursday, focusing on meetings with President Andrzej Duda and Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki. She's also expected to speak with several Ukrainian refugees living in Poland and employees of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, which has now moved operation to Poland. Her visits will extend into Friday, where Harris will meet with Romania's president to further discuss supporting NATO allies and Ukrainian refugees. Worker shortages persist in the U.S. despite a decline in job openings earlier this year. Lucia Mutakani from Reuters reports that available positions were still at record highs, with employers raising wages to attract new employees. As the U.S. nears 1 million COVID-19 deaths, the labor market remains tight. Shifts in wages are blamed for inflation, even as the federal minimum wage has remained at just $7.25 per hour since the recession in 2009, nearly 13 years ago. Inflation continues to be a problem for the U.S. as war in Europe increases oil and wheat prices. One expert at the Indeed Hiring Lab North American Economic Research Director, Nick Bunker, explains that the labor market may actually prevent an economic crash if job demand slows in coming months. In January, the U.S. began to see food and hospitality job openings decrease by over 280,000 postings. Additional industries saw smaller drops, including utilities and transportation. Job openings went down by 0.1% in January compared to December's rate overall, as other industries experienced an increase in job postings. In January, there were 1.8 positions available per unemployed person in the U.S. based on economist data, meaning that nearly half of the available jobs in the U.S. cannot be filled. That's all for national news. I'm Koda Babcock for KCSU News on 90.5 FM. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review, and now we're going over an upcoming event just after spring break, so stay tuned. Today I'm joined by Beth Seymour, the Managing Director of the ACT Human Rights Film Festival, to talk about the upcoming events happening just after spring break. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell me a bit about what the ACT Film Festival is? 
Yes, we are a department of uh, a program of the Department of Communication Studies here at CSU. We are in our seventh year, and we are thrilled to be back in theaters this year for an in-person festival as well as a virtual encore. Our dates are March 31st through April 3rd in person and April 4th through the 10th virtually. All right. And then can you explain some of the topics that will be discussed this year and give some background on some of the featured films? Absolutely. So the film festival this year features 19 films. 11 of them are feature length and eight are short films. They come from 16 countries around the world and span uh, topics like LGBT rights, disability rights, access to health care. We have several films on democracy and freedom of press this year, as well as some inspiring films about artists and architects who use their craft to propel social justice work forward. All right. And then what do you think is different about the film festival this year compared to previous years, especially the past couple? So beyond that, we will be back in theaters and um, able to communally have conversations and process films together. Once again, one thing that has shifted about this year's festival is that we've integrated some more self-care events. We have some guided meditations, some live music, and some time for community conversations throughout the festival to give people time and space to reflect and to have conversations about important topics. As we were reviewing films, our programmers watched more than 200 films collectively to select these 19. And as we were watching films, multiple programmers noted that that this year, after the past two years, had just a heaviness to it. And, and some of this work was, was sort of causing some fatigue. And so we talked a lot about self-care for our programmers and in that decided that, that, that our audiences would benefit from that as well. We also, for this year's slate, opted for more stories that inspire us versus challenge us, not to say that that our, our the films we're showing won't have topics that are important and heavy and challenging, but we definitely selected multiple films that have inspiring stories of people who transcended barriers or champion rights and made a difference in their communities and for, for people around them. All right. And then... As you said a little bit earlier, the events this year are happening in person from March 31st to April 3rd, and then you're also doing a virtual encore just after that. Can you explain what viewers can expect from the virtual encore as this is going to be a bit different of an event? Yes. So virtually 17 of the 19 films that we are screening will be available to watch. About half of those are only available to see in Colorado and the rest will be available anywhere in the United States. So we will have people tune in from um, from across the country. This year's virtual edition will have some pre-recorded content, but we aren't doing live streams and it just opens access so that people can watch films on their schedule, can spread out viewing over more than 10 days and, and can pick and choose from in-person and virtual or just virtual sort of to meet people where they're at. All right. And then since the event this year is going to be hosted at the Lyric, there's a chance for people to really interact locally. What are you most excited about it being able to be hosted right in Fort Collins where CSU students can get to it easily and engage with it? Yes. So our opening night is at the Laurie Student Center and we do have a filmmaker coming. He has been nominated for two Academy Awards and he will be speaking for free on campus on Friday, April 1st from noon to one, just about his career and his filmmaking and his journey. His name is Sky Fitzgerald. And we will later be showing his film, A Hunger Ward at the Lyric, and he'll do a Q&A at that event. And the majority of the film festival does take place at the Lyric it's hard to pick one thing I'm excited about, but there are there's a lot of energy coalescing around our Friday night film, which is KCSU FM's sponsored film. It starts with a short film from Shame to Pride, and then our feature length documentary is called Sirens. And that film will have a filmmaker speak at the film, as well as there's First Friday happening at the Lyric, so there will be local art local music, and there's even a local artisan's market. So there's a lot happening, and um, and I anticipate it will be a lot of fun. Switching gears a little bit, can you go over some of the history of this event and what community members are really supporting when they come out and enjoy films by the ACT Film Festival? Absolutely. This is our seventh festival. We were founded in 2016, and to date, I counted recently, we have shown 120 films in Fort Collins, um, including some virtually over the past two years. 
We, in traditional years, pre-pandemic, have brought filmmakers from every continent except Antarctica to come to campus and meet with students and community members and audiences to talk about the films, film subjects, and give people a deeper understanding of the issues. This year, we have more filmmakers joining us virtually or remotely just to accommodate pandemic travel considerations, but but there still is a significant number of filmmakers participating. It really is truly an international event. It opens audiences' eyes to issues that are happening near and far and just broadens awareness, helps create empathy and understanding, and really challenges some ideas. Audience members will regularly tell me things like, wow, that made me really uncomfortable and I needed to be uncomfortable. So it really pushes people to have moments of self-reflection on their own biases in places where they may need to push preconceptions away to, to have greater empathy and understanding for their neighbors or for, for people around the world. All right. And then kind of piggybacking off of that, can you talk about why it's really important to see the representation of filmmakers and subjects that aren't U.S. centric and aren't something that people experience in their daily lives here? Absolutely. So as U.S. Americans, many of us spend most of our time and energy digesting our own country's cultural content. And that's not necessarily true of the rest of the world. And Act Human Rights Film Festival really does make sure that we're not heavily over heavily representing U.S. films and filmmakers, although those tend to be the films that our audiences gravitate toward and attend in higher numbers. It, it definitely is something we're very interested in. But because we're a global world, because we do business with every country and because our decisions environmentally and, and in sustainability here affect people throughout the world, we are more connected than we often think. And it's important to have a, a global understanding of the choices we make and our behaviors and how those can affect people near and far. All right. And then moving kind of into the subject of the students who are really working to produce this event. Can you tell us a bit about what they're doing and how that serves in helping them prepare for a career or just fulfilling a want for getting experience before they graduate? So we have a host of both graduate students and undergraduates who are helping in specific tasks, but all across the festival. We have one student who's bringing activists and nonprofit organizations to the festival to connect with audience members so that after audience uh, audiences watch a film, they have a resource to move forward and to engage in collective action. We have another intern working on PR and learning the ins and outs of journalism, which is the career she would like to pursue. We have another intern who's helping coordinate our volunteers and doing a phenomenal job organizing people. Another intern who's helping with operations. And we have another intern who's running our social media way better than I ever could. All of these students are gaining job skills. Part of the Act Human Rights Film Festival is that much of the planning takes place fairly close to the festival because we select our films as near the festival as possible so that the films we do show are some of the most recent newest films to be released in the U.S. So, for example, two of our films premiered in January at the Sundance Film Festival and will be the second or third time they've been shown either in the U.S. or in Colorado. So, so many of these films are just unavailable anywhere else. And, and that does push planning to the last minute. So it's a fairly hectic, uh, fast paced on the job learning opportunity. But we have fantastic students helping with that. And we also need students to volunteer at the event. So if we have any listeners who are interested in volunteering, I would urge them to go to our website and sign up for a volunteer shift to help pass out programs, usher, talk to some filmmakers, help at the box office. We give away t-shirts as well as a film voucher to each volunteer, and we need about 150. So there's a lot of opportunities there. All right. And then that site is actfilmfest.colostate.edu for any listeners who are interested in that opportunity. And then as the managing director, what do you think the most important thing offered by the ACT Film Festival, whether it be experience, awareness, or something else is? That's an excellent question. This is my fourth year as managing director. And I would say for me, the most important thing is that we're never done learning. We can, I have watched quite literally hundreds of films on human rights and social justice. And pretty much every film I see expands my understanding, gives a new personal story, or, or just changes my perspective in a small way. And 
the depth and breadth of the human experience is truly impressive. And films really give us a really intimate window into different people's lives and experiences and a particularly powerful storytelling tool. So I would say that the experience of film, as well as watching together, whether it's virtually knowing that you're watching with an audience spread across many homes or whether you're gathered in a theater, but but doing something all together and being part of something bigger than yourself um, makes film festivals really fun. All right. And then is there anything else you want to tell us today about the ACT Human Rights Film Festival? We have half price student tickets. Uh, if CSU students are seeking the discount code, just send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at actfilmfest.org uh, to get that discount code. And um, that's half price tickets and passes for all CSU students. And um, our shorts film block, which is Sunday morning on April 3rd, starting at 10 a.m. So I urge students also uh, to come check out our shorts program. We do have a reservation link on our website for that. All right. And then once again, for listeners, that information is actfilmfest.colostate.edu. And that's going to be all for this. Thank you so much again to Beth Seymour for joining me. I'm DJ Hot Tubs, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In women's basketball, the team is 14-7 in their season, losing their last two games against New Mexico, 73-81, then Air Force, 63-67. Their next games are Wednesday against Utah State for the Orange Out game and San Jose State this weekend. In men's basketball, the team won 17-3, winning against San Diego State last Friday. Their next games are against Nevada on Tuesday, then Fresno State on Friday. In women's softball, the team will be starting their season on Friday for the Eastern Classic. The team will be facing off against San Diego, Ole Miss, Dixie State, and Cal. In men's lacrosse, the team won their Border War matchup 22-6. Their next match will be against the Georgia Bulldogs next week. In track and field, the men's and women's teams competed in the New Mexico Collegiate Classic, and the Rams came home with multiple podium finishers. Congratulations to Mariano Kiss, Drew Thompson, Mauricio Gilando Vega, and Elijah Scott for their top five finishes. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csurams.evenue.net to get your tickets for women's and men's basketball and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This has been your RMR Sports Report. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You're listening to Tech News for Thursday. PlayStation sales ended in Russia as Sony responds to the country's invasion of Ukraine. Jonathan Franklin at National Public Radio reports that a statement sent to NPR from a company spokesperson said that they were suspending all software and hardware shipments to and throughout Russia as the company advocates for peace. Additionally, the online PlayStation Store will be unavailable to Russian users. Sony's gaming division also donated $2 million to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and Save the Children to help Ukrainian refugees and Ukrainians that are unable to leave the country. Other tech companies like Netflix and Apple have removed themselves from the country in some way, showing solidarity with Ukrainians. Immigration authorities in the U.S. are asking more than 125,000 people to download SmartLink so they can be tracked and contacted by officers as needed. According to Amy Taxon and Amankai Biraben from the Associated Press, advocates say that the app, which requires immigrants to send selfies or answer phone calls when requested, violates the privacy of immigrants. Since immigration cases are not considered criminal but rather administrative, many consider this unnecessary as ankle monitors and other probationary tools are typically only used in criminal cases. Additionally, many undocumented immigrants already paid bond to live in the U.S. freely rather than in detention centers while they wait for their documentation to be processed. 
the U.S. government, has not been transparent in what data from the app is being collected and how it's being used. As some fear, it could be used to arrest other immigrants for minor violations as they interact with the immigrants on SmartLink. Disney CEO Bob Chapek urged the state's governor to address issues in the Don't Say Gay bill, making its way through state legislature. Katie Keck from The Verge reports that the bill would block primary school teachers from discussing gender issues and sexuality, something that has always been taught in schools through books featuring straight characters. Disney was recently under fire for not taking a public stance, with Chapek addressing this in his response. Chapek said in a memo to staff that corporate statements, quote, are often weaponized by one side or the other to further divide and inflame, end quote. During a meeting with stakeholders, Chapek said Disney stands with the LGBT community in Florida, saying that he hopes Disney's relationships to local lawmakers can help protect and support LGBT Floridians. That's all for Tech News. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News. And now for the weather. Today we saw cold and partly cloudy skies with a high of 24 degrees and a low of 1 degree. Friday, we'll see sunny skies and temperatures will warm up to a high of 36 and a low of 15. Saturday, we'll continue warming up to a high of 56 with a low of 28. And Sunday will be almost identical, but with partly cloudy conditions. Monday, we'll stay warm and sunny with a high of 56 and a low of 32. And Tuesday, will warm up even more to a high of 65 and a low of 36. I'm Coda Babcock with KCSU News on the Rocky Mountain Review, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Demuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Bandel, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you.